What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey friends, it's Lindsay here. I just wanted to take a second before this episode begins and thank you all on behalf of the entire Burn It All Down team for your support this week as we launched our Patreon campaign. As Jess, Shireen, Brenda, and Amira can vouch for, I was incredibly anxious about launching this campaign and asking for your help. But the fact that we are already two-thirds the way to our first goal in less than a week is beyond remarkable. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a platform that allows you, our listeners, to donate a small amount of money each month so that we can keep the podcast going. For as low as $2 a month, you can become an official flamethrowing patron of Burn It All Down, which will give you access to a special Patreon-only segment of the podcast. This week, we released one for our patrons focused solely on the NFL's mistaken priorities and punishments. Later this week, we're going to be unveiling a newsletter curated by the Burn It All Down team that will be just for those who contribute $5 or more a month. Really exciting things are in the works. Still, we have a long way to go, and every little bit helps get us closer to where we want to be. Remember, when you support Burn It All Down, you're quite literally helping to change the face and the voice of sports media. All right, that's enough of this. <laughs> On to today's show. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It might not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the one you need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and I'm thrilled to be your pilot for today's flight. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the horrific revelations this week about sexual harassment in the NFL Network and ESPN. We're also going to be sharing our personal journeys with sports fandom, and I will be interviewing Rebecca Nagel, a citizen of Cherokee Nation and one of the organizers of this week's viral Washington Redhawks campaign, aiming to get that Washington NFL team to change its name. Unfortunately, Amira, Jess, and Shireen are all off this week, but joining me for this episode is Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and we have a special guest, the host of one of my favorite podcasts with friends like these, from the Crooked Media Network, we have political columnist and culture critic Anna Marie Cox. In the past few years, Anna has become a big sports fan, and she actually has an article coming out this week in Sports Illustrated talking about that journey, which I cannot wait to read. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. It is good to be here. I am still in my first cup of coffee. That is my excuse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we always tell people, look, we're recording this Sunday morning, so go easy on us. Go yes. easy on us. <laughs> Okay, guys, first of all, I want to shout out one of my favorite things in the sporting world this week, which was, I don't know if you saw this Deadspin post from last night, but it was hockey announcers casually discussing Grinder at the end of a segment about... <laughs> 
So it was the Ottawa Senators. They were, you know, they're this game against this outdoor game, actually. And at the end of it, they were just kind of shouting out like ways to follow them on social media. And they ran this guy randomly was like, or why don't you try all these other social media apps, Tinder and Grindr? And like, he just had no clue. And then they just went on this long aside about what even is Grindr? We don't know. And it was just, (laughs) it was just so innocent, but ridiculous. And so like, I don't know. I just loved it. <laughs> I, to, I know we're going to get into like what we love about sports later, but I, did, I will add that one of the things that endeared me to sports when I was kind of becoming a fan, which was not too long ago, was the interstitial chatter of announcers. <laughs> like, especially the Cubs announcers, the, the hometown Cubs announcers are, I can't now remember their names, but they like talk about hot sauce a lot. <laughs> and Because of course, why, why not? I love yeah. hot sauce. Yeah. Well, Sure. And like also because baseball is an incredibly boring game still to me. Sorry, but you have time to chat. That's what's good so about it. So much lag time. So, <laughs> so much lag time. So, you know, like I think that's I think that takes a lot of skill. I'm not sure if I could do it, it's, you know, it's, like to, just to come up with something like not too, not too. And you know what? You, there's only so much you can prep for those like times when your mind just starts to wonder and like whatever is on the tip of like it just it's very it's very yep. revealing. All right. Well, we yes. will we will try not to let our minds wander too much today. Although if you've listened to the show before, you know, that's probably you're going to get some asides. Okay, so a few weeks ago, we were on this very podcast talking about how this Me Too movement of this reckoning with sexual harassment and sexual assault hadn't really come to the sports world. We'd seen it in politics. We'd seen it, of course, in Hollywood. But we hadn't yet seen it in the sports world. And I think we all knew that it was coming. And this week, here it goes. We had stories in the Boston Globe. And we also had another story on Bloomberg. The Boston Globe story focused on harassment at ESPN. And over at Bloomberg, it was about harassment at the NFL Network. Brenda, take us through what we learned this week about our lovely sports media world. Yeah, so these sexual harassment cases that surface, they really need to jumpstart a conversation about women's working lives in sports. So as you mentioned, Lynn, one important case is Adrienne Lawrence. We should say she's a former guest and friend of the show who filed a sexual harassment and retaliation complaint. And she filed it this summer against ESPN and the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. And offstage, we've seen an important case by wardrobe stylist Jamie Cantor against the NFL Network. And it shows, her allegation shows she received relentless sexually explicit texts, unsolicited nude photos, and was requested to touch the producer's penis while she was trying to work. While she was trying to work. That's Jody Cantor, want, right? Just, yeah. <laughs> that's Jamie that's Cantor. Jamie, and sorry, she's I trying keep saying to Jody, work. I keep doing that. Okay. No, it's Jamie Cantor. And while she's, I just like, it's one thing when you just read this and then you're like, this person is at her job. God. And I I mean, this is such, anyway, we should expect to continue to see this deluge. There's no way to diminish sexual harassment that some men have suffered, but I'm not lying when I say there's not one woman I know who has not experienced sexual harassment. Not one. 
whether it's education in, in schools, in universities that they've been to, in jobs, as customers, etc. So just a little background on sexual harassment, and, and maybe this is too basic for some people, but I'd like to just remind people that it's regulated by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And very generally, sexual harassment describes unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, or other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature. And women haven't been suing their employers very long. It's actually not. It was in the late 1970s that these cases, 77, that the first cases were filed. And we need to recognize, I think, the leading role of black women in that process, whose harassment was compounded by racist violence directed toward them. In fact, the Supreme Court didn't even enter into this until 1986, And they supported a woman named Michelle Vinson, who was African-American and whose boss threatened her job in exchange for sex up to 50 times. So working class women who have no recourse, who just need that job, African-American women who who face racism in addition. I mean, all of this needs to be sort of part of the conversation. And their work is so important. I mean, I remember I'm sure you remember Anita Hill's sexual harassment case against Clarence Thomas. And, you know, after that case, even though she failed, the number of sexual harassment complaints nationwide doubled. Wow. So it's it's so important. Lens, what do you think? Yeah, I just want to. So, Adrian, you know, we're talking about the role that, you know, black women have played kind of spearheading this. And Adrian Lawrence, it's important to note, was actually at ESPN on a diversity fellowship. She was a high powered lawyer and then was brought in as part of their diversity program to try and bring in more, more diverse voices to the mix. And in her complaint, she talks about how she was getting really great performance reviews and everything seemed to be leading to the fact that she was after this two year fellowship, she was going to get a permanent position at ESPN. She had completely upended her life from Los Angeles to Bristol, which we'll get into that a little bit more. But part of this ESPN thing is that they're in Bristol, Connecticut, which is in the middle of nowhere. And it really creates this, this private guarded community that it really cultivates the horrible atmosphere even more. But I just keep thinking that she was there on a diversity fellowship. And all of a sudden, she has the most powerful anchors, you know, one of them, at ESPN, texting her hashtag long legs and dream girl and all of these things. And that the whole excuse that he gets away with it, and this is John Boosiegrass we're talking about, that he gets away with it because, you know, he's saying I was just mentoring her. When, when is that part of a mentoring relationship? I think it's really important, the note that she was a diversity hire and also the history that Black women have played in this, in part because I think that helps draw attention to the fact that harassment is a discrimination issue. It is not just about sexual predation. That's a part of it. But that sexual predation like is hinged on the fact of making you feel less than it, like exactly like you said. I mean, Rebecca Traster did a great piece about this last week. I think that a lot of us probably read it, <laughs> but it was about t- sort of remembering that it, not to get too kind of wrapped up in the salaciousness of this and in, in the gross sexual nature of it and try to remember that this is about keeping women from economically advancing. You know, this is about making women unequal. It's not just it's it's not just about the horrible gross dick pics, yeah. which which I mean, I'm sure you guys have already discussed. I will never understand. <laughs> just, I will never. <laughs> have worked out. Like this girl isn't paying any attention to me. Oh, I know. Well. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, they're ugly. They're, they're ugly. Not, they're not you cannot, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it's like and also just like random people's dicks like it's one thing i guess if maybe you already love the guy but like if and it's just like then, I, I, like you want to have that conversation before you send it like. exactly 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 you need good filters you yeah. need really yeah. good oh, filters. Boy. brett fire yeah i'm talking to you brett fire yeah. <laughs> you need some perspective shifting. You need some forced perspective. <laughs> that really helps. Anyway, I, I, yeah, this is all really gross. I was glad to see that the gentleman who's now at the ringer has been put on leave. Yes. yes. Yeah, because yes. he, he was one of the people at the NFL Network who literally, that's right. what, what was it, that he would send her, you know, just these horrific texts and tell her that, you know, she made him horny, you know, while she was just like mm-hmm. walking down the, the you know, the hallway, he would send her texts. I mean, right. like, like she's just walking down the hallway doing her job. Like, oh. And also, it should be noted that ESPN tried to spin this as consensual relationships by releasing only partial transcripts of the texts yeah so let's go back to that for a second so espn this was the, the jamie Cantor. Uh, yeah. this is for adrian lawrence so oh, right, right, right right sorry sorry yeah the espn sorry. was was with adrian lawrence so they essentially so she had accused john bucci Grass. i'm always really bad at his name so i don't really work i'm not gonna stress over that though right now <laughs> i usually stress over name pronunciations but you know, he, like I said, he had sent her all these texts, you know, with a hashtag long legs, he had sent her shirtless pics, all of these things. And ESPN just defiantly saying she's making all of this up and released on their PR website, which is just bizarre, a very selectively edited portion of these text messages to try and just say like, this was just kind of a, a casual flirty thing between them. And there's nothing bad about this. And she was being nice too. And that this was just a professional mentorship relationship. But if you go to the Boston Globe, who then said, wait, 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 we're going to just release the whole text message conversation because we have it. I just, you know, I try and just read through that and every time think she is there on a fellowship. She is a black woman in sports media. So already someone who is, you know, at a at a disadvantage because, you know, and already put in these horrible boxes. And she's getting these inappropriate text messages from one of those powerful people in the company. How is that mentorship? Well, it actually does perhaps, unfortunately, bear a lot of, you know, Well, I was going to say, so unfortunately, it probably actually has a lot of bearing on one's future in sports for what it's worth. I mean, putting up with sexual harassment, if you could, you could almost say like, no, we're just preparing you for the future by harassing you so terribly like this. Right. Not that that makes it okay. Well, and women are told, right? Like women in sports are told. And I mean, in other parts of media as well, that your looks are so important to your success. So you have to be ready to be, you know, have your looks be commented on because that just kind of goes with the territory, right? Like part of the reason you're there sure maybe you're an okay reporter but part of the reason they want you to think you're there this is them saying not me you know is you know the patriarchy saying this is because you're hot because you're good to look at and that's part of your achievement to get you this job and that oh it's so disgusting Bren yeah I just think that we should also not forget in terms of talking about ESPN Jamel Hill And ESPN trying to take credit for diversifying sports media and doing absolutely nothing to support the people of color and the women who are giving, you know, who are drawing in that new audience and who are providing fresh talent. And, you know, I just think it's like utter bullshit that they want to market themselves that way. And then they come out with Adrian Lawrence and their note was nasty. That PR Mm -hmm. note was nasty. It was disrespectful, even if they think she doesn't have a case, which, by the way, it's not a super good idea. Look at any Aluko 
to take on women in sports who are lawyers. Okay. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know what? Like, like thanks to to those women for for fighting the good fight, and we need to give them all the support. But it it does relate to Jamel Hill in a way because it is a kind of culture that's perfectly willing to suck the talent out of these people and provide them with zero support. So I think we need to just keep that in mind as well. Absolutely. And, and there's this also this other aspect to this, which is the Boston Globe reported that the environment at ESPN can be so hostile and plumb positions for female sports journalists so precarious that the women hid pregnancies and felt pressured to take short maternity leaves in order to protect their positions. And one anchor even did her scheduled broadcast while she was having a miscarriage to prove her commitment to the job. Anna, I know that, you have some oh, thoughts on that. God, for one thing, it literally gives me chills. Like, I just can't even imagine what the emotional impact of having to do that must be. And the other thing is that there's this horrible irony, right? Which is that they're hired to look like sex receptacles, but they're not allowed to be pregnant. we want you to look like someone we want to have sex with but you're not allowed to do the thing that sex leads to right like which is just this fantasy land right that sports is actually kind of hinges on for a lot of men that there is nothing but playtime right there's playtime and all play no responsibilities yeah Um, which of course one of the reasons i think i can generally say maybe that we love sports is actually what i appreciate sports is it's not all play (laughs) you know it's not a fantasy it's not something that i I hide my everyday responsibilities when i when i enjoy sports i mean there's some escapism involved but it's not the thing that espn is selling right espn is selling all play, no responsibilities. And then I also just wanted to point out something that I only literally now just noticed, but it's it's also kind of horribly funny, which is that the headline on the Boston Globe story about all of this, or at least the URL, and I think the subhead says something like, it's not just Barstool Sports, right. <laughs> which is to say like, oh, no, no. But I mean, it, it's kind of funny. Like, oh, you thought Barstool Sports was bad. It, you know, it, wait till we tell you about the woman that had to hide I her miscarriage. framing of this was, though, I, I felt, and, and we've, we talked about this before when all this Barstool stuff was going down with ESPN, was how when Jen Sturger, who was also included in this piece, because she came out and talked about sexual harassment from Matthew Barry, who was a very, another high profile talent at ESPN, and so when all this stuff about sexism at Barstool was being talked about, she talked about her experience at ESPN. And everyone at Barstool spun that as, see, we're not so bad. <laughs> and it's just like, it's this. And then I, I was kind of frustrated that the Boston Globe kind of bought into that framing a little bit. And I just don't think that this needs to be a competition. <laughs> like, guess what? There's room for all of you guys in the trash can, like all of it. So so that was frustrating. I would be remiss if I didn't mention this Warren Sapp in here, who was at the NFL Network, and he was one of the people who was named in Jamie Cantor's suit. I got it right that time. And he's actually not at the NFL Network anymore because he was let go because he solicited a prostitute during the 2015 Super Bowl, which he was working Mm -hmm. for the NFL Network. But he would give, in addition to inappropriate text messages and comments and everything, he would give women vibrators and dildos and sex toys as Christmas presents. And his excuse on social media, he came forward with this by posting these photos of these like vibrators that look like lipsticks and being like, aren't these cute? These don't make you think of sex. I gave them to these women because I thought they were a cute present. <laughs> <laughs> and and the insane thing I, I is that, this, that 
Well, what you do with it, it, I think, is say, look, like this whole movement and this stuff about movies and Hollywood and it, it, it's they're not exceptional. This happens yeah. everywhere in less glamorous jobs, in less glamorous spaces where people don't have a million Twitter followers to tell it to. Can you imagine actually the women that work in the sports world who aren't on camera, what they must have to put up with? I mean, one of those women that we talked about was a wardrobe mistress, but like the women that work, you know, in sports medicine, the women that work in cleaning, you know, in sports stadiums. I mean, any kind of service position is going to be an incredibly precarious job no matter what. And like you probably have to put up with harassment, like on a nonstop level. And it's, I'm hoping that one of the things the Me Too movement leads to is that we get a more of a life-size map of the world in the discussion. Like right now, I feel like we're mainly getting the shades that go immediately from like black and dark gray to just jump to kind of light gray. Right. <laughs> and we, we're not filling in all the levels of gray in between. And also we're not filling in how constant yes, it is. Right. Yeah. And it's just in sports, like we're just to take this because, you know, we are a sports podcast. So while we we do want to always, you know, acknowledge here that this is much bigger than sports, I think it's important to note that like this is just all comes a lot of this comes in the sports world of this last stand of this boys, you know, world. And whereas the excuses were often given for why you don't see more females in high positions of talent or because women aren't interested in sports or because there aren't as many, you know, they're not as successful on the field athletes, so they're not brought into the broadcasting booth, because so many of our commentators and broadcasters are former star athletes on the male side as well. What this really helps show is that it's the culture. It's not that women aren't interested in. So this whole culture can be so unwelcoming, and so demeaning, and you have to put up with so much bullshit that that's why you still don't see as many women in there, despite the fact that as we say in this show, like, you know, 40% of sports athletes are women. And I think it's it's about 40, 45% of sports fans are women. So anyways, it's just ridiculous. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Jerry Richardson, the owner of my team, the Carolina Panthers, is being investigated for sexual harassment as well. So yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about how sports actually helps us sometimes and how we're able to still kind of find inspiration and joy from the sporting world, despite the fact that we are all too well aware on this show of, you know, the corruption behind the scenes, the discrimination and everything. Anna, I'm particularly interested in your story because I know you just recently, I think, became a big sports fan. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. I am actually right now, I realize this, this is totally not planned, but I am wearing my TCU sweatpants and a TCU t-shirt <laughs> as I speak to you. So yeah, TCU football is my team. Basketball is coming up because actually they're, they're, they're starting to be really good. Although that's, that just makes it easier to be a fan. Right. Obviously, yeah. like one of the reasons one is a fan is because you stick with a team through thick and thin. And my story is a pretty, it actually revolves around personal investment, I guess would be the way to put it. So I got sober about six years ago. And one of the things that you discover when you stop drinking and using drugs is you have a lot of free time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can, yeah. Like all this time that I'd spent not just drinking and using, but like hiding it <laughs> and right. like lying about it. And 
to some extent that was that was literally that was it is that I had all this time on my hands. My dad is a huge sports fan and the guy that I started dating was also a big sports fan. And so I just started to take it in with them. And then I think, so I actually started asking around psychologists and neuroscientists about this just because I had a hunch and it turns out it's true that sports, even just watching sports fulfills the same like dopamine receptors as drugs. Oh, fascinating. (laughs) I did not know that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. The highs that you experience if you're invested in a team are the same kinds of like, it's the same kind of pleasure, you know, loop system. And I think that I just, I started getting invested in teams. I started experiencing the joy that you have when you're invested and they do well. And actually, as TCU was my first sort of team, the year that I became a fan, I think this is actually kind of important. They didn't have a great year. They went like seven and five. But they had two games that went to multiple overtimes and then two other games that went right down to the wire. It was also the first year that Trayvon Boykin played. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he is such a magical player, which I kind of didn't realize at the time, but he was sort of, you know, already doing these like fourth down scrambles and these incredible, you know, last minute, you know, bombs to the end zone. And that just was so exciting right? And it to be transported by that. And also, again, I think that particular year to have them be that exciting, but not dominant yeah, was just enthralling to me. I did ask the psychologist or actually, yeah, the psychologist I talked to about this, if it's true that if much is the same way with drugs, if you keep on getting your high dose a lot, do you become, do you develop a tolerance? And he said, yes. And I was like, so you're telling me Alabama fans don't get the same high I do. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very important. uh... And he said, that is true. He said, that is correct. So for for what it's worth. (laughs) Ha ha ha, Patriots fans. Yes, Yes, exactly, exactly. And I have to say, I feel like I intuited this a long time ago. I always had, I I always didn't like teams more than I liked teams, even when I wasn't a fan. And I didn't like the Lakers and I didn't like the Yankees and I didn't like the Patriots. And I think that maybe that has to do with that. But, and then there's just, you know, the connections that you make with other people. I, I can say for sure that I have made friends being a fan that I wouldn't have made otherwise. People who come from different backgrounds and different points of view than me. And because we sometimes have this, underlying connection, it makes it easier to listen to each other. I will also say I became friends with Joel Anderson, who you guys must, do you guys know Joel? Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So he went to TCU and it's a small school. So actually like it's especially kind of like fans are especially clingy to each other. Like once you find another (laughs) TCU fan, like, so Joel went to TCU and we became friends and we were friends through the emergence of Black Lives Matter and the emergence of a lot of revelations about police brutality. And I, this is, sounds so corny. I hope he won't mind me saying this, but like having somebody that I was talking to who was black, who was just like a friend of mine, you know, and this stuff would come up in conversation. And I was like, oh, wow, like it was a revelation to me that we could just talk about stuff. Like that as a white liberal, like I didn't have to, avoid the topics that were made me uncomfortable. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and it seems weird to relate that back to sports, but I think that's true for a lot of for a lot of relationships that are grounded in fandom. Well, it's a that common that language, fan- right? That yeah. that really helps, you know, open doors to other languages and other <laughs> conversations and other avenues. It's true. Yeah. 
It's true. I would say again, like it's a good white liberal. I thought I was pretty sufficiently woke, you know, but being able to look at news, even sports news too, through the lens of my friends is something I don't think I'd ever had been challenged to do. You know, I'd never had it had the occasion to try to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I love that story. And I think it's so, you know, I don't hear many good things about college football these days. I like <laughs> to hear, you know, some sort of like, I like to hear the sentimental I mean, I mean, It's important. You know, yeah. Yeah. The NCAA is evil. Oh, and, yeah. you know, all the, all like the caveats. I, yeah. All, all the caveats. <laughs> Actually, so that same psychologist that I called for like insight, he also, when I told him I was like a 45 year old, you know, woman who became a sports fan at 40 and a college football fan at 40. And I was looking for to figure out why he started laughing at me, not unkindly, <laughs> but he was like, oh, great. Like you chose this. <laughs> why would you why do this to yourself? Why is this a habit you pick up now? <laughs> Don't you know better? <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and he was like, I'm a, he's like, I'm not making fun of you. I'm a fan too. It turns out like he's a UCLA fan, but like, he was like, I'm a fan too, but man, wow. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Brenda, I'm going to steer this question to you. I mean, I know you, obviously for you, it's it's football, soccer, <laughs> that you're, is, is your big love. Obviously, I think we can all agree that this has been for, <laughs> I would say, life reasons, <laughs> you know, et cetera, reasons and personal reasons, a tough year, you know, a real shitter, <laughs> like just, yeah. just like, real bad. Yeah. Are you still able to kind of find a, some sort of solace and comfort in sports okay. during years like this? Or is, I don't okay. know. Well, Are you, or- I just, so my thing's going to be about a person and not a team and you know who it is. It's Lionel Messi. And when I'm depressed and sad, I watch highlights of a particular game And it's important to understand two things for people who aren't into soccer. One, there's no comparison with any GOAT that I can think of because more people want to play soccer than any other sport and everywhere in the world they do. So to be the greatest of all time at soccer is a different thing. I'm sorry. I love LeBron James. I love all your GOAT conversations, but I'm going to kill them right here. They don't exist. Like U.S. sports. Serena Williams. Serena Williams. Sorry. No, no, I disagree. I will continue as much as I love her. Tennis is hard for billion people to play and soccer just isn't. So to say, you know, so this is my argument. You can hate, hate me, but this is my thinking on it. And I just finished writing my book on the history of Latin American women athletes. So it's pretty weird that I pick a guy that still connects me and soothes me in some way. But it's important that I never wanted to study sports. I hated them. I went down to do my dissertation on politics in Latin America. And it was so obvious, like no one was doing this. No one was looking at the politics of this trillion dollar industry that moves the masses. And so I started to to study it. And for me, watching Messi, especially like in 2007, 2008, He was the first person that made me realize the difference between being exceptional and being unbelievable. Like that it was just it was just like sort of if you had to look at like magazines all in black and white and then you have like a page in color, you know, it could have been with a lot of players, but it was with that player where I was like, wow, I get it. And I think it's his hat trick against Real Madrid in the Clasico of 2007. He's not 10 yet. He's number 19. And I watch, if I think there's no hope in things, 
I watch that the highlights of those games, which are about 12 minutes. I can link them to the show because maybe someone else will share my misery. <laughs> I want to see them. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I love it because he's not explicitly political, but he doesn't perform masculinity in any traditional way. He gets nervous enough to vomit on the field. He can't complete an interview. He's not a womanizer. He really challenges those traditional gender roles. So there is something political in it, but there's also just something about watching a person that sort of defies reason for you. And you're like, wow, well, if this can happen, then all the other things that I think can't happen maybe can happen. Yeah, I love that. And I I love what both of you hinted at, which is that, there's so many outcries that we hear the stick to sports crowd and the keep keep politics and all social issues completely out of sports and keep it pure escapism. But I find, and it sounds like you both do too, that at times that context just really enhances my love of the game because you have such a better understanding of what these who these athletes are as human beings, what they're going through on and off the field, the battles they're choosing to to fight or the things they're running from, and how you know how big their stories are. And I I love having that context and I love being able to kind of push the boundaries. I mean, look, sports, I I came into writing about politics through writing about sports. Literally, like I was a big tennis fan and I started after film school when there were no jobs because it was 2008. And that is not a year you should graduate and especially not a year you should graduate from film school. (laughs) I would not recommend it. You know, so I was odd jobbing my way around New York City and I was, you know, doing some production stuff here and there. But I, you know, I'd always loved tennis. And so really the day-to-day stuff of tennis really get me going. And I started really writing about the how we view women through tennis and how the gender dynamics that are at play in the sport and that are at play with how these announcers talk about the women's game versus the men's game. And I thought it was always so fascinating that you could see the women and the men on the exact same stage. You could see them earning the same amount of money and you could see them you know, playing on the exact same courts and you could see the exact same announcers and the exact same media people covering them. And then you could see the differences in the way they were talked about, right? And so it just became so explicit. And I began exploring gender dynamics through sports through that. And that was a lens that kind of came to me from my my media background. But for me, all that stuff just makes it richer. I've loved this explosion of the combination of politics and sports this past year, not only because it's good for business, because it's literally my <laughs> job, but because it's just, it's exciting to watch. And, and I want... A little bit before we move on quickly, what do we see that connection between politics and sports going in 2018? Where does that go going forward, Anna? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there's, you know, obviously for football, which is my main love and my most problematic fave, (laughs) you know, Americans are both the interest in was waning. But I have I feel like you're a fool to bet against America's preoccupation with violence. So (laughs) probably... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I kind of feel like football is not going to go away anytime soon. And and I think that, you know, the players have elbowed their way into the conversation. Thank you, Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, I think his attempt to politicize this worked and backfired at the same time because it forced a lot of owners and to a certain extent, some fans to kind of realize to decide whether or not they were okay with players having opinions. And it turns out you have to be <laughs> like, if yeah. you really love the sport, you have to be okay with them having opinions. I love it. Like Nick Saban said something like 
sort of typically non-committal, but basically positive about players expressing their opinions. I think he even framed it like just as opinions. He didn't say kneeling or anything. And people kind of roll their eyes, but it's true. Like you want to try to recruit people to come to Alabama. If you say you can't express yourself, if you're a black person, like I don't think that's going to work. I am actually genuinely shocked that he didn't say anything about Roy Moore because I think that probably would have hurt recruiting in Alabama too. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, the, some players have come to the forefront and talking about this have shown the the range of their interests. The NFL being the NFL will try to co-opt it and and milk it for all the promotional value that they can. But I don't think that players wanting to get their message out is going to go away. And, you know, the fact that they are they're all, all their own brands, hashtag brands now, means that they can do that. And I think you're seeing it. I mean, I think in, you know, basketball as well. Steve Kerr went on Pod Save America. I love that I, interview. It, that was a know, great interview. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I, I'm really glad that Dan did it. Dan Pfeiffer did it because he's probably the like legit most biggest, like biggest fan and also probably the nerdiest. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it was a really substantive interview and, and one that, clear, that both sides wanted to have. So I, I think that we're not going to see any any end to fandom and we're not going to see any end to the mixing of politics and sports. And I just want to point out again that for the people actually playing, there's never been a separation. Right. Like I, oh. I was talking to Matt Taibbi about this and he said something about, well, you know, I'm, I'm for, of course, I'm for all these things, but I kind of miss football just being football. And I'm like, when was football ever just football? That's like, yeah, for, for the people for, on the uh, for straight yeah. white men occasionally, <laughs> like yeah. who just had their right. blinders on. Yeah. All right, Brenda. Any any closing thoughts here? I hope we continue to see all the women's fight for equal pay. Yeah. I mean, Nor Norway just got it. The U.S. women's soccer team has been, but not only that, we saw you know on this pod like women's hockey and you know a lot a lot of sports. So I would love to see you know and okay. So backtracking on how much we love Serena. Her work and the women in tennis's work for kind of blazing that trail, I, I would expect and hope to to see especially women's national teams getting equal pay this year. That's my that's one of my New Year's wishes. Oh, fingers crossed. And I think it's going to be especially interesting to see women's hockey because we have the Olympics coming up, which is such a big showcase for women's hockey. And it's not going to be as big of a showcase for men's hockey this year because the NHL players aren't there. And for women's hockey, it's going to be the first time ever that we have a women's pro league in or paid pro league, I should say, in North America after the Olympics, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to be a way to carry on that momentum. And yeah, look, we're going to keep loving sports and we're going to keep pushing sports to hopefully a better standard here. Last Wednesday, Twitter and Facebook quickly became flush with articles that seemed to be from sites like Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and Bleacher Report announcing that Washington's NFL team would be changing its name to the Washington Redhawks. This campaign, which was launched by Native activists, went so viral so quickly that it solicited a response within hours from the Washington NFL team itself, assuring everyone that it was not actually changing its racist name. I spoke with Rebecca Nagel, a citizen of Cherokee Nation and one of the organizers of this campaign, about how this all started. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's just start. Where in the world did this idea come from? Yeah, you know, I had been thinking about spoofing the Washington football team for a while. I had done a couple other internet-based culture jams before, and I thought that the team would make a really good target. So I approached a woman named Jordan Daniels, who's the 
co-founder of the Rising Hearts Coalition, which is a group of Native advocates that do grassroots organizing in D.C. And yeah, I wanted to see if they would be interested in doing it. And they said yes. And then we started working on it in about August. So it's been in the works for a few months now. That's so exciting. I mean, it was so realistic. And it it wasn't one of those moments for me where it was just, of course, because I cover, you know, politics and sports. So everyone keeps sending me these articles, you know, the articles like over and over again. And of course, I realized pretty quickly that this, you know, that it had to be just a very well done spoof. But it was amazing how quickly it caught on. Were you were you expecting that? And what, what do you attribute that to? I was expecting it to get some media play. And you know, that's, was our goal, but as far and as wide as it went, we definitely weren't expecting. And so it exceeded our expectations. And I think that the response really proves the point that we're trying to put forth with the Culture Jam is that changing the name would be easy, popular, and powerful. I mean, people were really excited about it. People were really moved. And so at this point, there's really no reason other than stubborn racism why at this point the team's not changing the name. You held a couple of rallies this week. I believe one was today, this is Sunday, before the the Washington game at FedEx Field. And there was also one at RFK Stadium. What was the point of those rallies? And I guess, what was the atmosphere? Did you encounter any, was there anyone against you? Did you, did you have any feedback, any resistance? Yeah, I mean, so we were at, I just got home actually, at the stadium today. So we had a Go Red Hawks pep rally. We had banners, we had t-shirts, we had speakers and a drum group. So it was a really good day. And, you know, we had some hecklers. We had some people who yelled different things at us. I would say, especially for folks who have been doing these demonstrations at the stadium over the years, it was actually a less hostile environment than usual. And also there were a lot of fans who sort of came up and were like, well, what is this? What is this about? And we were able to have a lot of conversations with people, you know, who said, you know, like I would get behind the name change. I I see, I see what you're saying. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people are really ready for it. And I think that there will always be those diehard fans who will be mad if there is any change. And I think that if you look at social justice issues, particularly racial justice issues, I mean, there are some people who will always protest racial progress in this country, which isn't a good reason to not do it. Right. Yeah. We don't have to get to 100% consensus here, like to move on people's basic human dignity. (laughs) Right. Like, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. So we just got to keep moving forward anyways. What are those conversations like? Take me through it. And I think that this is something that a lot of people who agree, yes, the name can be changed, should be changed. Yes, I see why this is racist. But when they're caught in those conversations with people who are ardent, you know, ardent fans, ardently against it, they kind of don't know exactly what to say. How do you handle those conversations? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, we were talking with somebody who was selling merch. And at first, you know, he's really mad that we were there because we were like setting up close to where he was selling merch. And then by the end of it, we actually gave him a Red Hawks t-shirt and we're talking. (laughs) Yeah, and another person came over and then brought his family over. And so, 
you know, there was some educating about the origin of the word, which sometimes a lot of times people don't know the full origin of the word. And so it actually comes from while the US Army did a lot of the wholesale slaughter of indigenous people, a lot of the murder was actually settlers. And so just like individual settlers that would go out and kill native women and children. And the colonial governments would incentivize that by giving people money for scalps. And there are actually different prices for male scalps and women's scalps and the scalps of children. And so settlers would go out and would murder native people and then bring the scalps back to the government in exchange for cash. And so that's literally where the term comes from. You know, like I've heard that that description so many times it never seeds to make me go how how are we still having this conversation then do you know what i mean like yeah. how is how is just you saying that those two sentences how is that not the end of all of this like, yeah, and I, you know, this week we spent a lot of time being mentored and talking to a longtime activist on this issue, Suzanne Harjo, who's been fighting racist mascots since the 60s. And one thing she said in our conversation this week was, you know, I haven't heard a new argument in defense of racist mascots since 1962. And I just, I don't think that there are good reasons to keep the name and a lot of reasons for it to change. It can feel these days like we are moving backwards as a country for pretty obvious reasons. But overall, there are some positive changes still happening. But thanks to grassroots activism and thanks to people. And, you know, lately we've seen that coincide with athletics a lot. You know, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement really take off. And thanks to Colin Kaepernick, we've seen, you know, athletes really kind of find their voice and do it on and speak up on a bigger stage. Do you think that that current political movement within sports is going to help the racist mascots cause to kind of become more mainstream again? I hope so. I mean, I think that when people were kneeling during the football games, it wasn't brought up a lot in the media I watched. But I also think that the media lost the point of the original protest of the players, which was to talk about police brutality. And a lot of the media that I saw was talking about Trump right. and Trump's backlash and the, you know, like, what does the Star Spangled Banner mean? And what is our national anthem? And so I think even the initial issue that players were putting forward around police killing unarmed black people got lost in the media frenzy. And so I think it's a hard, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't see that issue come up, but I think in general, in a broader way, I think our country is having an identity crisis right now. And so there's this huge backlash from white people who feel threatened by the advances that people of color have had. And then at the same time, we're seeing a lot of racist symbols like Confederate monuments starting to fall and people really starting to question that history. And so there's been a real, while there's been this awakening of white supremacy, I think there has at the same time been a counterbalance of a reckoning with what some of these symbols mean. And so we're in an interesting moment. And I think that the mascot debate is really relevant to that of how, how are we teaching our kids about these issues? How are we talking to them about the history of this country? And for better or worse, a lot of people get their information from pop culture. And mascots is a huge way that people learn about who Native people are. Whether or not they would say that out loud, I think it's definitely a really big part of people's subconscious. 
Yeah, and there there was recently an article, I can't remember the exact situation, why it was, but there was a racial slur, the N-word had been used by, I think, an NFL player on the Washington team. And the headlines about it would not bleep out the Washington team's name, but then bleep out the N-word, you know? And it was just yeah. this big, it, it was like, look, how is this, how are we doing this? Like, like, like yeah. how, why do you think that it's become so okay to continue to use these racist mascots. And these, I mean, and in, in, in the case of, you know, lots of times you'll have the Indians where the logo itself is very racist, but, you know, the names aren't in itself a racial slur, like with the Washington NFL team. How is that just gone overlooked? Why isn't that reckoning come? I mean, I think that one of the biggest hurdles that we face as Native people in terms of gaining equality in the United States is invisibility. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. think that either Native people don't really exist anymore, or there are just so few of us. And we just, there's like a handful of us that live on a reservation somewhere in a really rural area. We're not seen as contemporary, vibrant people. We're not seen as living in the DMV. You know, people don't realize that the tribe whose land the stadium is on is still an active tribe and they're still practicing their ceremonies and their own self-governance. And so, and I think it's this self-reinforcing thing because it's like, well, if people aren't around and they don't exist and they're not real, then why would you need to stand up for their rights? And I think that, you know, the maroon cartoon of a disembodied head on the side of a football helmet really reinforces those ideas that we're not real people. You know, you're not going to stand up for the rights of a cartoon. Right. There's so much great grassroots activism going on within the Native community. How can those outside of the community help and help amplify that work? And and are there any specific works that you would like to, to draw attention to that maybe people aren't aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think that getting involved with whatever organization is in your area. And so looking up, it might be a tribal organization, it might be, you know, an urban Indian health center, but really starting by trying to build relationships with whatever Native community is where you're at. And then I think also it's really important for folks to include us in their issues. So, you know, when people are talking about the environment, you know, Indigenous communities are at the front line. When people are talking about global warming, you know, our communities are at the front line of resource extraction and a lot, almost every issue in the U.S. And so a lot of times we're just completely left out. Like I was watching the news and I was watching this episode about police shootings and it was talking about how we talk about a lot of times police fatalities, but there hasn't been a lot of statistics on people who have been shot by the police and survived. And so they showed statistics by race and they completely left out Native Americans when we have really high rates of police violence. And so I think that visibility issue is key. And so... Yeah, I think non-Native people building relationships and then also self-educating. I mean, if you, you know, I think most people in the U.S., like what you know is like what you've learned in your high school history class and what you've learned through the media, which is not only not enough information, but also incorrect information. And so there's just a lot of re-educating that people need to do in this country to be able to understand Native identity and Native rights to be able to effectively advocate for it. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the success of the campaign, which even solicited a response from the Washington NFL team itself. Of course, the response was, how dare you think we might be decent people? We are never changing this name, but it was a response nonetheless. Where can people follow the work you're doing going forward? Yeah, so people can follow the Rising Hearts Coalition on Facebook and Twitter, and people can also root for the updated Washington Redhawks team, also under that name on Facebook and Twitter. Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, moving on to the burn pile, our favorite segment. Brenda, you want to kick us off? Sure. So this week, there is an uber-talented young soccer player, a girl named Olivia Moultrie. She's 11 years old. She's from California. And she's adorable. And so absolutely want to make sure that it's clear that I am not burning anything about this charming and talented and smart 11-year-old. <laughs> we don't burn 11-year-old girls. I do not. <laughs> I do not burn 11-year-olds or anything about them. I have one. And so I have an 11-year-old. So it kind of, an 11-year-old girl, one of my girls. And so it, it sort of jolted me to read her Instagram post where she announces that she's, quote, I have accepted a scholarship offer to play soccer at the University of North Carolina. What? <laughs> End of quote. Okay. WTF. What the fuck? I mean, <laughs> he hasn't taken algebra. Like, this is this is a child. What are you doing, Anson Dorrance? Right? I what what are you doing? And of course, I get, I mean, how am I not happy for her if she's happy? She's 11. But I I mean, this is the most legendary women's soccer program. And what are they doing signing 11-year-olds? How is this possible that you can get a university scholarship at 11? And I think it's just a slap in the face to professors like me who expect that the primary function of the university is to educate young adults. Mm -hmm. And it's just an insult to my profession, to my work, to my colleagues, that you're going to sign an 11-year-old for a scholarship. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't burn. get to do that before they graduate, before they show any indication. So burning that practice. Burn. 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 <laughs> All right, Anna. Well, I guess I'm going to also caveat my burn a little bit, which is to say that Jake Tapper, old friend of mine, I think he's one of the hardest working men in show business. But on the night of Doug Jones' victory with Charles Barkley, getting a ton of attention for his support of Doug Jones. Tapper did an interview with him where he was just grilling him. Uh, well, first of all, about his basketball career, he like made several references to it and then also kept asking him what message he wanted to send to Trump. And Barkley, to his credit, so this is like half burn, half props, said, I have a message for Democrats. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> hey, Charles. <laughs> And basically he said, he said, you need to stop ignoring black people and poor people. We keep voting for you and you don't do anything for them. So pay attention to, you know, Democrats, as long as black people and poor people are voting for you, you need to put their needs at the top of your list, which is just kind of revolutionary to hear on cable news, to hear it framed so, so starkly. Um, and then also I have to give credit to, to Char Sir Charles for saying poor people as well as black people, which I actually shows a, shows a generosity of spirit that maybe not everyone would have. Yeah. And also just the truth. And he also could have said in Alabama, at least not said poor people because most poor people in Alabama are black. But 
anyway, good for him. Yeah, and but stop asking sports figures if they're doing politics. Don't ask them about sports. That's my that's one of my pet peeves. Yeah. If they're there to talk about politics, just go ahead. That means they that means they know something. Yeah. So so bur- burn that Jake Tapper. But we love you <laughs> in general. <laughs> burn. burn that moment. Okay. Yeah. All right, I want to throw Lee Dragna, a fan of the New Orleans Saints, onto the burn pile. Lee has filed a lawsuit against the Saints seeking a full refund of his season tickets. Why? Well, because of the protest during the national anthem, of course. (laughs) So Dragna's suit cites a week two home game against the Patriots, where he says a few Saints players didn't come out onto the field until after the national anthem. And apparently this was traumatizing to him. And so he hasn't been back to a home game since. Dragna says he wouldn't have purchased the season tickets if he'd known about the protest and that he is entitled to a full refund because he purchased his season tickets for quote, entertainment and intellectual enjoyment. (laughs) And the protest got in the way of that. Okay. All right. So I have a feeling, just kind of a feeling that Lee is one of those people who likes to rail and rant about outrage culture and libtard snowflakes and the need for safe spaces. And that he probably sees absolutely no irony in any of those rants in this lawsuit. But look, Just to cap off how ridiculous this is, the Saints didn't even protest during that game. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. I will leave you with a quote by Saints running back Mark Ingram, who tweeted about this lawsuit saying, The one time we protested an anthem was at an away game. After a team (laughs) meeting, we decided to kneel as one before the anthem was played and to stand united during the anthem. Good luck, dude. <laughs> so that was Mark's <laughs> message. And so, Lee, we are just burning this lawsuit. Stay Burn. home, Lee. Burn. <laughs> yeah, we don't need you. <laughs> All right. Time for the Badass Women of the Week section. This week, we have a lot of exciting honorable mentions, starting with Allie Fitzgerald of Lindbrook, who was the first girl to win a sanctioned high school wrestling tournament on Long Island. Go, Allie. We also have Mame Biney, who became the first black woman to qualify for U.S. Olympic speed skating team. We cannot wait to root you on in Pyeongchang. This week, also, Paula Navarro became the first female head coach in professional men's football in Chile, and I believe possibly all of South America, Brenda? Yeah, I, I don't know of another case in, in Latin America, really. In the Americas. Oh, in Latin America. In the Americas, oh. because Woo-hoo. I can't think of a woman in the U.S. who's done it either. That's fantastic. And we also want to give a shout out to some of our Ultimate Frisbee listeners. Jesse Schaffner and a bunch of other great Ultimate Frisbee players are leading a boycott of the AUDL, which is a pro league for Ultimate Frisbee. And they're boycotting because, quote, the AUDL does not ensure that women and men have equal representation in 2018. So we're really excited for the Ultimate Frisbee community for pushing forward for gender equality. And, okay, Brenda and Anna, if you want to join, would you like to do our fake drum roll before I give us our winner? (laughs) Okay, Okay, good, 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 good. So our Badass Woman of the Week Award goes to the Nebraska Huskies women's volleyball team, which saved a match point to defeat Aramira's beloved Penn State in the semifinals and then beat Florida in four sets in the final to capture the 2017 National Championship. The championship match was played in front of a record 18,516 fans at the Sprint Center. And we had Michaela Fecke and Kelly Hunter were the final fours, co-most outstanding players, both from Nebraska. So this is the Huskies, I believe, second championship in the last Huskers. 
Oh, excuse me. In the th- third and last corn, five years. Corn. So, corn, corn. corn, huskers. Not dogs. Huskers, not, not dogs. dogs. But corn. the dogs would be good. That is a very important correction, though. Thank you, Anna. So, <laughs> congratulations. All right, let's finish up with some positive thinking. This is actually our final, I should mention our final new episode or completely new episode of the 2017 year. Our next two episodes, we recorded some intros for you all with some new stuff, but they're mainly going to be highlighting some of the the segments and interviews this year we enjoyed the most. So I'm looking forward to that. But what's good in your life, Brenda? What are you looking forward to? Lindsay Vaughn's good in my life right now. I was excited. 78th World Cup victory yesterday, second oldest skier competing. And she elegantly explained that she doesn't represent the president when she competes in the Olympics. So I'm enjoying, I want to watch how this all unfolds. And I'm just enjoying watching her compete again and being in the mix. Awesome. Love that. Anna? I'm just going to go back to Sir Charles because this is a nice coda to the other statement, which is that in addition to his appeal to the Democrats to pay attention to black people and poor people, he personally is putting a million dollars into a fund for female black tech entrepreneurs in Alabama. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. And I think that he didn't just thank black women for voting. You know, he actually. (laughs) Yeah. Doing a thing, which I anyone who thanked black women for voting First of all, listen to my podcast this week because it's about how that's a little bit problematic. And then the next thing, if you really feel that way, do something. There are tons of black women running for office right now. I think there's over 100. You can go to Act Blue and find some people to give money to. Be like Charles. We don't say that often on this podcast. And no. <laughs> I should say. Yeah, maybe the and, first and time. Charles Barkley, caveat, there are some problems there. We'll, we'll, yeah, I know. We'll, we'll, I know. In, in this, this instance, be like Charles. Very, yeah. very, very <laughs> Or maybe we could frame it as if Charles can do it. Oh, there you go. I like you that. There you go. Yeah, I like that. There I like you that. go. All right. I and like I, I will just second that. I really did enjoy your interview with Rebecca Carroll this week on, you know, kind of that intersectional aspect of me too and how that's often lost in the conversation yes for me i'm just gonna be pretty blunt about it this is my last full work week of 2017 and i am ready for a few days off and i'm ready for the holidays and i will be excited to rejoin you all back here in 2018 thank you all for listening to burn it all down we're on itunes soundcloud stitcher everywhere you all know those itunes rating and reviews really help us because For some reason, despite the fact that we have hundreds of great reviews, iTunes still shows the troll reviews, the troll one-star reviews that we got the first day we launched from men's rights activists. So we're trying to get rid of those, friends. If you can help us, that would be a great holiday present. You can find us on our website, burnitalldownpod.com, on Facebook and Twitter as well. We'll have all those linked in the show notes and support our Patreon campaign, which we just launched this week as well. Patreon.com slash burn it all down. Thank you all so much for joining us. Anna, thank you so much for being here. We loved having you this week. And happy holidays, everyone. And I saw you-